You're listening to a sermon from Midtown Presbyterian Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about Midtown and its ministry, please visit us at midtownpres.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Friends, really glad you're here. Really grateful for each and every one of you. Wherever you are on your spiritual journey, uh, whether that feels like a desert as it does outside, whether that feels like an oasis, thanks for joining us and being here with us today in Midtown. You guys, we live in a culture of discontent. Back in 2002, uh, the BBC produced a four-part documentary series that reviewed the 20th century in the Western world. They called it The Century of Self, which I think was an accurate title. Much of the series exposed how American culture has been built on a singular principle, creating in people a sense of discontent with their lives. Much of this, they say, started during World War I. During the war, a variety of corporations uh, grew rich, churning out war materials. American patriotism fueled this huge economic boom, and large companies took advantage. They saw unprecedented profits during the war. But then after the war, during peacetime, Those same corporations grew concerned about their bottom lines. How could they keep up exorbitant profits when most Americans were content and at peace? They needed a new strategy. If people stopped buying things, their factories would go quiet, so they came up with a solution. Subtly convince an entire population that their lives, as they currently experienced them, were not enough. That they needed more. There's actually a guy named Paul Mazur who's a prominent baker at Lehman Brothers in the 1920s. He put it this way. He said, we must shift America from a needs to a desires culture. People must be trained to desire, to want new things, even before the old have been entirely consumed. Man's desires must overshadow his needs. One of the people who charted the way forward in this new path was a guy named Edward Bernays. Bernays was the nephew of famous psychologist Sigmund Freud, so he had a deep understanding of human psychology. And he knew that humans tended to make decisions driven more by desire or instinct than they did by rational thinking. And so he decided to use that knowledge to make himself some money. He moved to Manhattan, he started an office, and consulted with businesses and organizations. And the work he did, he couldn't call it propaganda, because that had negative connotations, especially after the war, so he called his work public affairs. And everything he did started with manufacturing discontent in people and then selling people on things that they didn't really need in order to try to satisfy that discontent. So he worked with car companies. He convinced car companies that they could sell cars as symbols of macho man masculinity and sexuality. Men would see the ads, they'd feel discontent that their lives didn't look like the men in the ads or that the women they were with didn't look like the women in the ads. And then they'd go out and buy more cars. He worked with Lucky Strike cigarettes to promote smoking to women who at that time had not really smoked. It was taboo for women to smoke in the culture. And so he did this by connecting cigarettes to the women's liberation movement of the 1920s. He pitched cigarettes as torches of freedom. And they staged rallies and galas where prominent young women in the culture smoked. So all of a sudden, American women were looking around ordinary lives and being convinced that their life was somehow less proactive or less empowered or just less satisfying than the women in the ads. Lucky Strike's stocks went through the roof. Bernays also pioneered celebrity promotions and product placements in movies and TV. Americans everywhere consumed ads where beautiful people told them the beautiful life was available with a simple purchase of a product. And so Bernays and this new industry, public affairs, it put discontent in the oxygen of America. 
Former President Herbert Hoover saw how successful this was in his own election. In 1928, he uh, was giving a speech to a bunch of public affairs professionals. He said this to them. You have taken over the job of creating desire and have transformed people into constantly moving happiness machines. Machines which have become the key to economic progress. It's our president. Former president. And now... Each and every one of us in this room is breathing the air of more than 100 years of discontent. We see, according to recent, uh, a recent interview in Forbes with marketing experts, we see on average no fewer than 4,000 ads per day, all of which are training us that our current life is not quite good enough. Our culture is telling us everywhere we turn that the accumulation of more will make us safe and happy, and we built our entire society around discontent. We practice a religion of acquisition. Just get to this point in your career, or make this much, or save this much, and that will cure your discontent. Get married to this person, and that will cure your discontent. Buy a home, that will cure your discontent. Get this new product, that will cure your discontent. See a counselor, that will cure your discontent. Take this drug, that will cure your discontent. I still remember when the iPhone 13 came out. I don't know if you guys remember the ads for it. It had this new remarkable feature that they were advertising. The iPhone 13 was green. You needed the new iPhone. Everyone needed the new iPhone 13 because it was green. It was no different than the iPhone 12 other than it came in green. You guys, acquisition is a bad religion. It's a demon that doesn't cure our discontent. It only amplifies it. Because if we become consumed with consuming, we are either anxious always about getting more so that our life can look a little better or we're fearful about losing what we have because that might mean our life looks a little worse. So we become stingy hoarders or paranoid complainers about gas prices or the economy or whatever else. The vicious cycle of acquisition is perfectly ironic. Our discontent is only increased the more we seek to relieve it. Isn't it amazing that the most prosperous and materially secure nation in the history of planet Earth is also the most anxious and fearful that we have on record? We are people for whom deep contentment feels fleeting in an era of discontent. Notorious B.I.G. had it right 25 years ago. Mo money, mo problems. <laughs> so what can we do? How can we become people of peace and joy and life in a culture that seems to have lost those things entirely, in a culture that's constantly looking for the next best thing? Well, the scriptures actually have an antidote for our disease of discontent. It turns out that right in the middle of our biblical library, there's an entire book of prayers and poetry called the Psalms that help us deal with every part of the human condition, including our discontent. This book is like a series of counseling case studies. You read through them, and there are things that you didn't know you were allowed to pray. There are things you didn't know you were allowed to express. All of the pain and joy and anger and grief and anxiety and fear and shame and discontent, all of the winding parts of our human condition, they're found in the Psalms. In this book, and it shows us the contours of how we walk through those experiences towards health and life. And so each week here at Midtown, we're examining a different psalm. We're calling this series Psalms, Super Creative. A different psalm every week, and we're going to see what this psalm teaches us about how to pray in and through the myriad of our human experiences. And then, throughout the week, we're putting these prayer structures into practice. So you may have noticed on your way in, we have some resources on the next step table. If you didn't grab them, that's okay. You can grab them on the way out. But each week, we're going to spend 15 minutes in the morning, 15 minutes in the evening, reviewing the prayer practice that we went through together. And you're going to actually put this into practice in your life. 15 minutes in the morning, 15 minutes in the evening, and we have instructions on how to do that through those resources. So make sure you grab one on the way out. Uh, today, 
We're looking at what Psalm 103 teaches us about gratitude prayer and how the practice of gratitude actually heals us of our discontent. It does that uh, here in the psalm by giving us insight on three things. It gives us insight on the definition of gratitude, on the content of gratitude, and on the action of gratitude. The definition, the content, and the action. Friends, if you have a Bible, open it with me to Psalm 103. If you flip towards the middle of your Bible, you'll probably land in the psalm. It's a big book. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, that's okay. The words will be behind me on the screen, so you can follow along there. Psalm 103 of David. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and do not forget all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity. Who heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good as long as you live, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works vindication and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always accuse, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he removes our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion for his children, so the Lord has compassion for those who fear him. For he knows how we were made. He remembers that we are dust. As for mortals, their days are like grass. They flourish like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it's gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, obedient to his spoken word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers that do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There's a a fancy Bible tool that has been used by pastors and theologians over the last uh, few centuries. It's called a concordance. And a concordance is an alphabetical listing of important words and phrases that you find in the Bible. And it's helpful because it allows you to build connections across whole swaths of Scripture with major themes and ideas that are prominent in them. And one of the main themes that you'll find in the Bible, and you'll find in most of your concordances, is actually one we see right away in verse 2 of Psalm 103. It's the theme of remembering and forgetting. Anyone want to guess how many times the word remember or the word forget is used or one of its variants is used in the scripture? Throw out a number. What do you think? How many times do you think remember or forget is used? 500. 500. 1,378. There you go. Any others? 1,500. 1,500 times. Closest without going over. Right? Price is right. Come on up. No. 1,500 times. 
66 books, 1,500 times. The scriptures are littered with the words remember and forget. One of the most noteworthy examples, it pops up in the book of 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1, it says this. Make every effort to support your faith with excellence, excellence with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with endurance, endurance with godliness, godliness with mutual affection, and mutual affection with love. For anyone who lacks these things is blind, suffering from eye disease, forgetful of the cleansing of past sins. In other words, what Peter seems to think, if you are lacking in anything good or peaceful or healthy or wise or fruitful, it's because you're forgetting. It's because you've not remembered. The scriptures seem to think this practice of remembering is central to becoming people of deep life and peace. So what is it about remembering that's so important or not forgetting, as the psalmist puts it here? See, for many of us in English, this word remember, it's kind of been stripped of its deep meaning. When we hear of remembering something, we just only think of mental recall, recalling an event or a circumstance. But the Bible's understanding is much more robust than that. It's not just about mental recall. Consider, for instance, the way it's used in Jeremiah 31 to describe God himself. God says, I will remember their sins no more. Now, is God talking about mental recall? Is God looking at us and like, you know, that person did something really bad in 2015, but I can't remember it. I remember it not. I can't recall, right? That's not what God is talking about. Remembering is deeper than just mental recall. Remembering in the Bible is the practice of having something so central to the core of your being, to your identity, that it affects how you behave and live in the world. To remember something is to have it so central to your mind and heart that it orients how you act and how you feel. The word itself in English actually hints this to us as well. Look at how the word remember is structured. It's remembering. That is bringing our members back together, our body, our mind, our heart, back together around a central truth. This is something that Emily and I practice oftentimes to remember the importance of our love for one another. We remember by recalling mentally and then reorienting our body, our hearts, and our minds around an amazing trip we had that reminded us of our love or pictures from our wedding that reminded us of our love. We remember around the love that we have for one another. And it's in that practice of remembering, that reorientation of the core of our being, that we actually find the definition of gratitude. That's another word that we often mistakenly define in our culture. We often think gratitude is simply or only listing off the wonderful material things we have, which is a part of it. We think that's it. We think it's about counting our blessings, enumerating the things we have, and then attaching a hashtag blessed to the end of it on our social media post. But the scriptural understanding of gratitude runs deeper than that for Christians. Gratitude is a remembering of ourselves around the central truth that all we are and all we have is a gift from the loving giver. All we are and all we have is a gift from the loving giver. And that's actually assumed in the word itself, again. The word gratitude, it shares the same Latin root as grace, which means gift. To use the word gratitude or grateful is to assume that something is a gift. And to assume something is a gift implies a giver. You can't be grateful without a giver. That's what we as Christians reflect on, the beauty of the love of the giver behind the gift. Uh, a few years back, as an example of this, when Emily and I first got married, I came home from work one day, and she had surprisingly bought me a new bookshelf. She wanted me to be surprised when I got home. For many of you in that room, in the room, you're like, bookshelf, whatever. But I'm a nerd. I love to use and read books all the time. So this was a really special gift for me. Immediately, I filled that sucker up with all sorts of books. But then, that bookshelf, as it sat in our apartment, I'd walk by it every day, 
I remembered something beyond the bookshelf. I remembered and was grateful for the love of my wife that led her to gift me that bookshelf. That was actually the whole point of the shelf. I was grateful for it, but only because it showed me something deeper. The gift was an arrow pointing to the love of the giver. And I knew that if that bookshelf broke, or if that bookshelf burned, or the source of its, the shelf would still persist and endure. I could experience deep and abiding uh, peace and contentment in the love that I have with my wife because I had a bookshelf that showed me her love. And even if that bookshelf went away, I knew that the love would persist. Parents in the room, when you make a meal for your kids, it's more than a meal. It's a reminder to them that your love endures in empty bellies and in full bellies. And the fact that they return to you again and again and again for another meal, hungry, means they are remembering. They are remembering themselves around the truth that you love them and will care for them and provide for them. Friends in the room, when you set aside quality time to listen to another friend, it's more than just quality time. It's a reminder that you care for their soul. You care for the deepest parts of who they are. And every time they come back to you in a new circumstance to talk with you and to listen to you, they're remembering themselves around the truth that you care for them and love them. Whenever we practice gratitude in prayer, we are placing ourselves before God and remembering ourselves. Remembering who he is so that he might bless us with the peace of his presence and love again and again and again. That's actually what prayer is at its heart. Prayer is placing ourselves before God so that God can bless us. That's the whole idea. And then becoming enraptured by God's love, so much so that it leads us to extend that love to others. That's what David is illustrating in Psalm 103. He is remembering, putting himself back together. And that's a groundbreaking shift in the definition of gratitude for us. Because it means that gratitude is not situational. See, so often... We either accidentally or intentionally locate our gratitude in things themselves. We say we feel peace or contentment because we have certain things. But that means that the peace and contentment is conditional. We then become people who are utterly dependent on a particular material or social or political or professional or familial situation in order to experience peace. So it's no wonder we feel discontent all the time. Because inevitably, our situations go away. They get jacked up in some way or another. Our material comfort isn't quite what we want, or our relationship status isn't quite what we want, or the candidate who won isn't the one we wanted, or our career is stagnant, or our family is broken. We experience discontent because we've loaded our peace onto ships that are bound to sink. We feel discontent because well, we haven't actually done the work of remembering ourselves behind the giver. But when we pray in gratitude, that's what we do. We remember ourselves around the truth of the giver behind the gift, and we can find peace that transcends circumstance or situation. That's what the Apostle Paul meant when he implored believers in 1 Thessalonians in the New Testament to give thanks in all circumstances. Give thanks in all circumstances. He's saying the experience of gratitude will be something that gives you peace no matter what's going on around you, no matter what you lack in your life. And Paul, by the way, is a pretty credible authority on this point. Remember that the latter half of his life, he was imprisoned, stoned, chastised, shipwrecked, and bitten by a snake. Yet there is peace deep within him that comes to him through gratitude. Gratitude for who God is in the midst of those circumstances. And notice, by the way, that Paul doesn't say, give thanks for all circumstances. He says, give thanks in. He's not saying everything you're going to experience is going to be great. He's not saying that this is some well, sentimental a gratitude that you practice. 
You can grieve, you can lament, but you can also find gratitude in the midst of how God is working through those situations. There's profound bravery. It's not sentimentality. Profound bravery in practicing gratitude in every circumstance in our life. I like how that theologian Henry Nouwen puts it. He says, gratitude is the awareness that life, in all its manifestations, is a gift for which we want to give thanks. And the closer we come to God in prayer, the more we become aware of the abundance of God's gifts to us. We may even discover the presence of those gifts in the midst of our pains and sorrows. The mystery of the spiritual life is that many of the events and people and situations that for a long time seem to inhibit our way to God become ways of being united more deeply with him. What seemed a hindrance proves to be a gift. Thus, gratitude becomes a quality of our hearts that allows us to live joyfully and peacefully, even though our struggles continue. That's the definition of gratitude, friends. The Psalms are teaching us to respond to our discontent by practicing gratitude in prayer. But it doesn't stop there. It defines gratitude for us, but it also outlines the content the thing that we're actually most grateful for. See, over the course of the poem, David reveals the content that has enabled him to have peace. He also lived through a lot of really bummer circumstances. His son wanted to murder him, for instance, for a good stretch of his life. The whole psalm here, it's actually a robust elaboration on the good news of the gospel, on the good news of who God is in the middle of a broken world. The life and healing that God brings in the midst of brokenness and sin. And David is just amazing with the the metaphors he uses in this psalm. For instance, he says, this is a God who forgives your iniquity. The word translated iniquity there, it's the Hebrew word avon. It's related to another Hebrew word ava, which means to bend or make crooked. So in Psalm 36, a poet describes their back as being bent or crooked. It's avad. Or Lamentations 3, a road that isn't straight is crooked in some way. And David is saying that our lives, our hearts are crooked. He's using that word to describe the experience of our souls and beings. We're people whose hearts and actions are bent out of shape in one way or another. We're selfish toward others when we are to be loving to them. We seek our own benefit at the expense of our neighbor. Over and over we find a bent soul and a bent life. And the scriptures uh, elaborate on this metaphor over and over. They talk about how we as humans have to bear our iniquities. That is, bear our crookedness, our brokenness, our bentness. We bear it through broken relationships. We bear it through consequences to our actions. We bear it through guilt or shame. We're all people who carry the burdens of our crookedness, of our iniquity. Which is what makes David's phrase so remarkable here. What he's saying is that God has incredibly taken the burden of our crookedness away from us through forgiveness. And so all the shame and all the weight and all the guilt of our crooked humanity, God has chosen to take on and forgive so that we could be free to live good and gracious and whole and free lives. I like how John Steinbeck, great literary mind, put it in his book, East of Eden. He said, now that you don't have to be perfect, you can be good. The cross of Jesus is the manifestation of the forgiving love of God. On the cross, Jesus took on the burdens of our crookedness all the shame and all the pain, all the guilt that we feel in our broken relationships and the burdens of our crookedness. And then he conquered those things so that we, in trusting in Jesus, could become people who live full and free and holistic lives, a peace of love. And so if you enter this room, you're discontent, carrying the weight of guilt and shame. There is good news for you. God has carried that already for you on the cross. He's defeated it already in the resurrection. Forgiveness is a remarkable gift 
that you can be grateful for. But David doesn't stop there. He keeps going in this psalm. He says that this is a God who heals all your diseases. See, the conditions of our crooked world mean our bodies and our minds don't work the way that they ought to. Some of the deepest grief that any of us will ever have to face is the failing of our own bodies or the bodies of those close to us. Cancer or arthritis or dementia, aching bodies cause aching souls in us. But David reminds us that all those pains and all those griefs will be healed now or into eternity. Our broken bodies, our broken world doesn't win. So if you enter this room with an aching body or grieving the aching body of others, there is good news. God heals our aching bodies. When we turn to Jesus, we are promised that we will run and dance and eat and laugh in his final redemption and restoration. It's a giant party at the end. And so healing is a remarkable gift that you can be grateful for each and every day. But it keeps going. David says, this God crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. This is the language of honor and esteem, kings and queens and royals. He's saying here that we can practice deep gratitude, not just for forgiveness and healing, but because God has honored us. In a world that dishonors us all the time, in relationships that often degrade or dehumanize us, in our hearts where the affirmation of others is always fleeting, we find that God elevates us and honors us as esteemed. The one who has final say over all others says, you are honored. You are loved. You are esteemed. You are crowned. He celebrates us and names us as his beloved children. That's a metaphor that David keeps playing on in the psalm. As a father has compassion on his children, so God has compassion on us. So if you enter this room feeling dishonored, if you enter this room feeling unseen or unloved or just missing the ultimate affirmation that your heart longs for, hear the good news of the gospel. God honors you. God sees you. God loves you. Regardless of what anyone else says or believes about you, honor and identity is a remarkable gift that we can be grateful for. And David keeps going. He says that this God works vindication and justice for all who are oppressed for those who are marginalized, those who are overlooked, those who are in need of justice in a world of injustice and oppression, God hears you, and God brings justice. The world of unjust wars and broken systems of government doesn't win. No one gets away with it in God's economy. True peace and justice and unity comes in and through God's work now, through his people and through the way that he's working here, but also into eternity. Makes me think of the song that we often sing at Christmas time. We overlook this verse. It's so powerful. Oh, holy night. You guys remember this? Chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother. And at his name, all oppression shall cease. So if you enter this room having been marginalized or knowing someone who's been marginalized or oppressed or harmed or abused, hear the good news of the gospel. God brings righteousness and justice into this broken world. He's already started that work now, and he will bring that work to its culmination into eternity. Justice and peace are remarkable gifts we can be grateful for. And we can keep going on and on and on. This psalm is long. It's loaded with poetic expressions, and it's actually tended, intended to be comprehensive. That's what David has in mind. There's 22 lines in this psalm. That's the whole Hebrew alphabet. There's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. The idea is that he's saying from A to Z, God's love is comprehensive. He uses the word all over and over, five times in the first six verses, four times in the last four. God's redemption and restoration is holistic. 
And so, friends, the deep discontent that we often feel in our lives and in the world, it can be navigated well only when we become people who remember ourselves in gratitude towards God. Because everything else will fade. This gospel will remain in the midst of all circumstances. And that should naturally lead us to the question, okay, so how? How do we actually do this? Because much of our lives, I don't feel very grateful. I don't know about you guys, but when the alarm goes off in the morning, I'm not popping my head up and thinking, man, God, I can't wait to waste my body and mind away and work again and do it again and again and again. Gratitude is not something that we often feel or experience deeply right away when we wake up. So how do we do this? How do we practice gratitude? We actually get a couple tips from David in this song. Two parts to the action of gratitude, how we put this into practice. First, start by listening and speaking to your life. Did you notice in the psalm that we read, who is the psalm addressed to? David over and over says, O my soul, all that is within me. He's speaking these words to the center of his being. Friends, gratitude is about vigorously praying into the deepest parts of our lives the truth of who God is and what God has done. And most of us rarely do that. Most of us show up to prayer and make it all about us. And if we're grateful, it's more out of obligation than it is out of uh, coming from the deep center of our being. I mean, think about it. If we're leaving prayer and we're just as discontent and anxious as we were before, then we haven't allowed this deep gratitude to sink to the center of who we are. And so gratitude, prayer, helps us find what the author Sue Monk Kidd called our grateful center. It's a holistic and centered space where we are free from constant grasping and grabbing, pushing and shoving for more. That is the center where we experience deep and profound contentment in our very existence. So we need to start by listening in the deepest parts of who we are to our lives. What has God done in your story? What blessings has God given you that you may be overlooking or missing? What parts of you has God forgiven or healed or redeemed? What relationships has God surrounded you with? Where is his goodness and grace evident in places you normally overlook? In water and in wine, in bread and birds, in sunsets and sunrises. And you'll notice that once you get started on this, once you get started on speaking the truth of who God is deep into the center of your life, it'll be hard to stop. It'll keep going and going and going. There's a great theologian named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who, by the way, fought against the Nazis, was imprisoned and then martyred. He had plenty of things to be discontent about. But he said this, In ordinary life, we hardly realize that we receive a great deal more than we give. We receive a great deal more than we give, and that it's only with gratitude that life becomes rich. So start by listening to your life. Set aside 15 minutes in the morning, 15 minutes in the evening. Pay close, good attention to God's active presence in and around you. It's the first thing we learn. Oh, my soul. Speak deeply into your own center. The second thing that we learn from David here, we need to practice this before we feel it. We practice gratitude before we feel it. Many psalms in the book of Psalms have specific occasions for which the words are to be sung or prayed. And those occasions in your Bible are usually indicated by words written in italics. So it's an occasion that you sing the psalm for. But notice this psalm doesn't have an occasion assigned to it. No occasion. Why? Because it's for every occasion. It's something you should be doing constantly. It's not just for one part of your life. It's for every part of your life. That's the point of the psalm. It's to train us in good and bad, amidst feelings of consolation and desolation, to posture ourselves in gratitude towards God. And that is crucially important to remember because we are a feelings-driven culture. Feelings aren't bad, by the way. Feelings are important and good. 
But so often we tend to only do things out of our feelings. And we say, well, I'll be grateful when I feel grateful. I'll pray when I feel like praying. I'll worship when I feel like worshiping. There's just a couple main problems with an entirely feelings-driven approach. First, we are forgetful people. Our hearts and our minds are naturally drawn towards the good, or towards the bad, not the good. That's where we defer. That's where we default. An image that helps express this. David, you can go ahead and throw that, uh, that black dot up on the screen. What do you guys see here? A black dot, right? Yeah. And that's there. But it is a small portion of what's on the screen. See, our human instinct is to notice the black dot and notice the black dot only. Our human instinct is to look at the bad in our lives, the things that we're missing, the things that make us discontent, when the reality is that there is so much more to be grateful for. There's so much more outside of the black dot. Think about it in your life. Have you ever experienced how you can easily recall or remember one negative comment that a parent said to you one time, but then a hundred positive comments go in one ear and out the other? You ever notice that dynamic? It's really easy to recall the things that are negative. It's harder to remember the affirmations that are true about us. We are forgetful people. And so we need to practice gratitude even when we're not feeling it. We need to practice gratitude even when all we can see is the black dot because it reminds us that there's so much more around it. That's the first reason we practice this before we feel it. But the second reason we practice it is that behaviors in our human psychology and bodies, behaviors don't follow feelings. Feelings follow behaviors. Behaviors don't follow feelings. Feelings follow behaviors. There's a psychologist named Peter Hill who's done extensive research on the practice of gratitude, and he writes that gratitude never begins with an attitude. It begins with a habit. It doesn't begin with an attitude, it begins with a habit. We will never become people who stumble or feel our way into comprehensive gratefulness. We need to have habits of practicing it even when our feelings aren't particularly positive. Again, none of us are popping our head off the pillow and proclaiming to God, thank you for another hard day of work. Thank you for another amazing, hard, strenuous parenting experience today. It's because our posture is not naturally that way. Our feelings are not naturally that way. Behaviors have to precede feelings. And that's true of every habit. You don't maintain a healthy body by feeling great about going to the gym every day. Those of you who go to the gym, no. Waking up early and getting there, it's not something that you always feel great about. You have to build the behavior. But then, over time, what happens is your whole being gets shifted because you see how this is a healthier way to live. After doing that for a month, after getting up and going to the gym for a month, you start to realize, oh, man, my mind and my body are changed. I actually desire to do this. You build the practice, and then feelings follow. I've seen this in my wife, Emily. Emily's never been a morning person, you guys. Never enjoyed waking up in the morning. She has woken up four out of five days during the week, every week for the last year to go work out in the morning, early, 5.30, a time that she never would have woken up otherwise. And it was hard at first, but now she longs for it. She craves it. It's actually one of the most life-giving things for her. That's what gratitude looks like for us. We practice it. We build the behavior, and then our feelings follow. Numerous studies done all around the country and all around the world have shown that gratitude rewires us when we build the practice first. So build it into your daily routine. Use the guide that we wrote to help you. Allow your feelings to catch up to your behaviors, not the other way around. I want to close with a great quote from a guy named Ronald Rawheiser. He talks about the importance of gratitude. He said, to be a saint, that is, to be a Christian, read Christian, is to be fueled by gratitude, nothing less. Gratitude is the basis of all holiness. The holiest person you know is the most grateful person 
And so in a world of discontent, one of the most radical courses of action that we can take is gratitude. Stopping and praying and practicing. Because it reworks, it rewires us as humans. We become people who find true lasting peace in a relationship with the giver that transcends circumstance. We become people whose bodies and minds and souls are remembered, reoriented towards peace and life and healing. So this week, you can do something radical, life-changing, earth-shattering. You can be grateful. And that starts here. And that can transform not just you, friends, but the city, the streets, the world around us. Let's be grateful people this week. Let's pray, friends. Thank you.